Good morning, everybody. It's good to be with you this Lord's Day. And I invite you to turn with me in your copy of God's Word to the Gospel of Matthew. Matthew chapter 10. And I want to consider this morning verse 28. Matthew chapter 10, verse 28. Let us hear God's word together. And do not fear those who kill the body, but cannot kill the soul, but rather fear him who is able to destroy both soul and body in hell. Amen. Let's pray together. Our God and Father, we thank You for the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. We thank You for His shed blood on Calvary's cross. We thank You for His infinitely worthy life that was given to bear for us the penalty for our sins in His own body. That He gave His life that we might have life. Father, we come to Your Word this morning reminded and sobered by the reality of what we've been saved from. That we have been saved from the wrath of God that is coming upon all unrepentant sinners. That You have done what we could not do and You have rescued us from an eternity of torment an eternity of separation from all that is good. Father, thank You for Your grace. Thank You that You loved us when we were not lovely. There is nothing in us that was the cause of Your love, but it was Your good pleasure and Your eternal love for Your people that caused You to give Christ for us. And we thank You for that. We thank You for Your Holy Spirit who brought us to faith in Christ, to love Christ, and to submit to His Word and His kingship. Father, as we consider this this one brief and yet very weighty text from the lips of our Lord, we pray that You would give us sobriety as we come to Your Word. Father, cause us to be stirred up in our affections in the appropriate way in response to this passage. Father, we pray for any who are here who are outside of Christ, who are in danger of hell. Be merciful to them, we pray. Awaken their consciences. Shake them from slumber. Awake them from a sleeping conscience. May they be frightened by the judgment that is coming for sin. And may they turn to Christ, we pray. Build up Your people, Father. Make us more zealous and fervent in our prayers, in our evangelism of the lost. We pray, work by Your Spirit. Strengthen us 
Work that which is pleasing in Your sight. We thank You for Your mercy to us. We pray that we would desire that others would come to know it. Draw near to us now, we pray. We ask for Your help. We pray in Christ's name. Amen. The author to the Hebrews warns us, it is a fearful thing to fall into the hands of the living God. John tells us the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest day or night, these worshipers of the beast. The Lord Jesus Christ tells us in Luke 16 that the rich man being in Hades and being in torment cried out, Abraham, Father Abraham, have mercy upon me and send Lazarus so that he may dip the end of his finger in water and cool my tongue, for I am in anguish in this flame. And in our text, the Lord Jesus warns us, fear him who can destroy both soul and body in hell. And we could go on and on, far more abundant than these that I've referenced, is the testimony of Scripture to the terrifying and yet very real existence of hell. A place created by God where all unforgiven and unreconciled sinners will be cast, where they will be tormented forever and ever. And the Lord Jesus Christ, more than anyone else in Scripture, warns and pleads with sinners to escape this place at all costs. I was preparing to, planning on preaching, continuing on in John 7 this week, but sometimes things happen in Providence that suddenly burden your heart, stir you up to contemplate certain things, and This past uh, Thursday at prayer meeting, we read in our Scripture reading Revelation 14, which has within it, verse 11, the smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever, and they have no rest. Day or night, these worshipers of the beast. And among the prayers that were offered was one that contemplated the dreadful final state of all who do not hear and do not receive the Gospel of Christ. And another prayer made reference to to this text this morning. Matthew 10.28 Do not fear those who kill the body, but fear Him who can destroy both body and soul. And Bethany, I'm speaking for myself, I think we don't think about these things as much as we ought. Because it's much easier to think about more pleasant things. It's much easier to talk and to preach about more pleasant things. Because hell is dreadful. It's discomforting. Disquieting. But the Lord never speaks a single word in vain. And when the Lord repeats and speaks repeatedly upon things such as these, it's because it is of great profit to our souls. Things difficult to hear, certainly. But faithful are the wounds of a friend. 
And the Lord Jesus Christ is the best friend that sinners can ever have because He speaks the truth to us. These things have stirred up several things in my heart. I want to just, by way of introduction, name three here. And we'll, we'll come back around to these in our application. Three, three things, the contemplation of hell, eternal conscious torment, stirs up, should stir up in our heart. Number one, that it is good for the unconverted and those who remain unaffected and unchanged by the Gospel to be frightened by the terrors of hell. The, the fear of eternal punishment is not all it takes to make someone a Christian, but it is often the beginning of a good work. It, it is the disturbing of the soil in preparation to receive the seed of the Gospel. That's why one of the reasons why God has put these things in His Word. To awaken drowsy and sleeping consciences. One Puritan, Christopher Love, said, Sermons of terror have done far more good upon unconverted souls than sermons of comfort have ever done. Secondly, how for believers, thoughts of hell ought to create within us a fear of God, a dread of hell, and a careful, carefulness not to tread the paths that lead there. That, that is what Jesus is saying here. That there is a sanctifying use for the Christian of the doctrine of hell. You remember elsewhere, Jesus tells us, after He tells us to cut up, be willing to cut off hands and gouge out eyes if they are the instruments that cause us to sin, He says, for it is better to enter life lame than to enter hell with a whole body. Hell motivates the Christian to fear sin and to fear its consequences and to fear its destination and to cling more closely to the paths of righteousness. Third thing, the doctrine of hell should drive us to our knees in ceaseless supplication for those who are in danger of it. Romans 10, verse 1, Brothers, my heart's desire for them is that they may be saved. Romans chapter 9, I am speaking the truth in Christ and I testify that I have unceasing anguish over my kinsmen according to the flesh and wish that even I myself might be accursed and cut off for Christ for them. Hell stamps eternity onto our eyeballs that every single person we meet is not stagnant in their direction. But they are a never-dying soul if they are outside of Christ on their way to the place of destruction. And therefore, they need our ceaseless supplication and prayer. I want to use Jesus' exhortation in Matthew, 8, or Matthew 10 as a starting point to ask and answer several questions about hell this morning. That'll be the body of our considerations. And then at the end, I want us to draw application together. 
And so using Matthew 10, verse 28 as something of a jumping off point to explore, to ask, and to answer questions regarding the doctrine of hell, and then to draw application for us. So four things, four questions and answers. Number one, probably one of the most important questions, is there a hell? Is there such a thing in such a place as hell? We have to realize, Christian, how a person lives their life hinges upon whether or not there is a judgment coming. If there is no hell, then as Paul says in 1 Corinthians 15, let us eat and drink and be merry, for tomorrow we die. And when we die, nothingness. It's no wonder why men find the doctrine of hell one of the most disagreeable doctrines and one of the first ones they seek to deny or change. Because we know if there is a hell, that immediately encroaches upon my freedom to live however I want. And it means that there is one stronger than I who can send me there. And it means that I am governed by His terms and not my own. But if you get rid of hell, you can get rid of all of that. But the fact is that the judgment of God that is coming is made known to us both by the Holy Scriptures, but secondly, also even by the innate knowledge that God has put into man. Solomon tells us in Ecclesiastes that God has put eternity into our hearts. We are born knowing there is a life to come. Man doesn't even need a Bible to know that judgment is coming. Because just as Romans 1 says that man innately knows that God exists, so we know something of His righteous decrees and we know that our deeds have fallen short and deserve punishment. Romans 1 verse 32 says that though they know God's righteous decree that those who do such things deserve to die, they not only do them, but also give approval to those who practice them. Men know that these things are worthy of the sentence of death. Hebrews chapter 2, man is enslaved to the fear of death. And the Scriptures confirm that that's, that's our natural knowledge, even apart from the Scriptures, but the Scriptures confirm and make more explicit what we already know by nature. It speaks to us again and again of a real place prepared by God where sinners who have not repented and trusted Christ will be thrust and will be tormented as the just punishment for their sin. There's no way to read your Bible and have any question about that. Hell is not a doctrine that is contained in one or two obscure verses. You either believe in hell or you reject the Scriptures. 
And it is one of Satan's chief objectives. One of his chief objectives to do all that he can to keep the thoughts of hell and of judgment to come from men's minds so that they go on without fear in their sin. Running headlong into their sin. I mean, it's no wonder, you think about even in our day, it's no wonder why it has become a commonplace condemnation of certain preachers by calling them hellfire and brimstone preachers. Right? As though those those are the serious ones and those are the bad ones. Jesus was a hellfire and brimstone preacher because He cared about souls. And while men may mock such doctrine and may mock such who bring such doctrine, God has given this, in, given this to us in His Word not so that we may mock Him, but because He's telling us the truth. And He's warning us before the day comes so that we are not on that final day caught unawares. God tells us about hell to stir sinners up to seek the Lord Jesus Christ now while we have the light, not so that we may slight God and mock God. That's the first question is, is there a hell? Second question, why must there be hell? Why must there be a hell? Very simply put, there must be eternal torment because of the utterly filthy nature of sin against an infinite being. A transgression against an infinite being requires a proportionate punishment in the world to come. My friend, if you're here and you're not a Christian, there is such a thing as hell and it will be unchangeably so because God is just. There is a hell because God is a good judge who rewards good and who judges and punishes evil. And sinners may regret the fact that God is just, And they may bemoan the fact that that justice will fall upon me in an unfortunate way. But listen to me, that is a blemish not upon God, but upon us. You hear it all the time. People casting blame. Deriding God's character for the doctrine of hell. I could never believe in a God who sends people to hell. What kind of monster is given to fits of rage like that? My friend, listen to me. If you're here and you're you're not a Christian, don't reason like that. Don't make yourself the victim in our situation and in our plight. That That is sin deceiving you in how you are evaluating reality. And I know, believe me, I know it feels good for a time. Because what it does is it takes the spotlight off of my sin 
And how awful my sin must be in order that it would warrant such a punishment. And instead, it shifts that spotlight of blame onto God for why He would punish such a thing. And do such a thing. And suddenly, we are more concerned about the punisher of a crime than we are about the crime that made the punishment necessary. That's Satan's logic. And Satan delights when sinners reason that way. And we as sinners by nature are so ready to to receive that kind of counsel. He comes to us in the form of temptation and He says to us as sinners who don't want to face our own guilt, He says, you don't like what the judge thinks about your life? You don't like His threatenings of punishment? And Satan doesn't say to us like Jesus does, who's a true friend, who says, well then repent and believe the Gospel. Satan says to us to look at the judge and to resist him. And to defy him. And to accuse him of being unworthy of his office as judge. When in reality, we are just the criminal deluding ourselves by denying how heinous our crimes are. That leads to a further objection that sinners will make. They will object that God is unjust. Even if there ought to be some sort of punishment, God is unjust in punishing men eternally for sins that were committed temporarily in this life. Christian, I confess, the eternality of hell, it is something that we cannot cannot wrap our minds around and grasp the, the terrors of what that means. It is a dreadful truth. But it is a just thing of God. I want to give you several, three reasons why. Number one, even in our execution of earthly judgment and punishment, we do not evaluate one's punishment based on the amount of time it took to commit the crime. We all understand that. The thief goes to jail for a lot longer than it took him to break into the house. And with God, we are not judged for how the amount of time we sinned, but rather we are judged for the fact that we did sin. Secondly, sin against an infinite God deserves an infinite punishment. This is one thing that we miss. We judge God by human human standards. We, we even understand this again in our execution of justice. We judge the heinousness of an earthly crime, at least in part, by the dignity of the one against whom the crime was committed. 
And so striking, for instance, the president or a police officer warrants a far greater punishment than simply striking a common person. Even though the the crime itself is the same, the person harmed determines the severity of the crime. And with God, we are not harming a a mere finite being, but the infinitely worthy Lord of heaven and earth. Even the smallest sin is a sin of high treason against infinite love, infinite goodness, and infinite beauty. Thirdly, third reason why God is just in punishing sinners eternally. The third reason is that men continue to sin even in hell. And thus, their sins are forever compounded and forever further provoking the wrath of God for their disobedience. In hell, there is still no repentance. In hell, there is gnashing of teeth against God continually, forever and ever, thus provoking the wrath of God forever. That's the second question. Why must there be a hell? It is because sin and the justice of God is the reason for why there must be a hell. Third question. Where is hell? Third question. Where is hell? That might seem like a somewhat of a unique question to ask of this doctrine, but it has very practical implications for us. There are some, for biblical reasons and otherwise, who have reasoned and come to different conclusions about where hell might be located. Some have said that it's somewhere in the air because Satan is called the prince of the power of the air. Others have said that it's located under the earth or in the middle of the earth, or under the, at the bottom of the sea, I confess to you, Christian, I don't know, and I don't think that God has disclosed it to us. But here's the point. While the Scriptures do not tell us the exact location of hell, it surely tells us that there is such a place distinct from heaven where God and the saints dwell And it seems to me that God in His infinite wisdom has kept hell's location a secret from us in order to prevent us from undue curiosity and to keep us from fearing hell more than we fear the sin that leads there. The emphasis of Scripture is to make us far more concerned with avoiding hell than it is to locate hell. And to realize that though we do not know where it is, what we do know with certainty is that sin is the guaranteed highway that leads there. Jesus spoke of the broad road that leads to destruction. People are on that broad path Not because they can see hell up ahead and they see it in all its misery. 
but rather they are on that broad road that leads to destruction because sin now brings with it fleeting pleasure, but it is leading to the destination of bitterness and misery. Sin and the hell that it leads to are the ultimate bait and hook. Sin appears appealing to us. It entices us. It draws us. But it is hiding the hook of everlasting destruction for those who follow that path, who are unrepentant and who do not turn to Christ. Fourth question. That was the third question. Number four, what are the torments of hell? What are the torments of hell? This is by far the most sobering of all the considerations. Thomas Goodwin said, Hell is a punishment so great that it cannot be comprehended by our thoughts nor ever be sufficiently expressed. And yet, the Scriptures do not shy away or hide from us something of the utter misery of the damned soul in hell. The torments of hell consist both in what we could call deprivation and positive punishment. First, the soul in hell suffers under eternal deprivation of everything that is good. First and foremost, he suffers the loss of the presence of God's goodness. As God declares to the damned sinner, depart from me, you cursed. He is deprived eternally of all the company of the saints and of the holy angels. He's deprived of all the blessedness of heaven and all the mercies of God in Christ. And he's deprived of all hope of any recovery of his state because he has become past redemption. My friend, listen to me. If you're outside of Christ this morning, the terrors of hell may terrorize the sin-sick soul, and that is not a bad thing. We should be terrified by hell. But now, today, this morning, even the worst shudderings and fears and tremblings, they are a terror that is still mixed with hope. Because even as you hear of what might be and what could be for you, you know that my case could be changed. That God is merciful and if, if I humble myself and repent and come to Christ, He will receive me. But for the soul in hell, all such hope is merely a memory. And a memory that will torment the soul. But hell's torments are also 
not only deprivation, but the positive inflicting by God of anguish in both body and soul. When Jesus says here in verse 28 that God is able to destroy both body and soul in hell, He's not referring to destruction or annihilation. But He's referring to never-ending torments that will cause the sinner to wish for death, but death will never come to him. First of all, these torments are universal. Not only in the whole of man, both body and soul, but in their entirety of what we could experience as torments. Here in this life, we experience one affliction at one time and another at a different time, but the torments that come upon the man in hell will come upon him in a moment and they will come upon him entirely to consume him. Number two, not only are they universal, they are full strength. It is a torment that cannot be quenched and cannot be tolerated, but will never end. Romans, Revelation 14.10, He will drink of the wine of God's anger poured full strength. Thirdly, the torments of hell are continuous. We already read Revelation 14, verse 11. The smoke of their torment goes up forever and ever. And they have no rest day or night. There is no intermission with relief. Add to that, the soul in hell will find himself or herself in the company of countless others who are suffering the same agony, which will make the experience of hell all the more grievous to them. They will be tormented by demons and by Satan, and all without any hope that my my pain will soon be over. My friend, unbeliever, listen to me. God is speaking to you in His Word about something that is more than just life in death. Your never dying soul hangs in the balance. God, in His mercy, before it is too late, is pressing you with sobering, terrifying things so that you would take note. And that you would go the right way. Consider what you will lose in hell and what afflictions you will take upon yourself and what folly it is to to accept an eternity of torment for a fleeting 50 or 60 or 70 years of sinning here on earth. Would you like Esau exchange your eternal soul for a blip of a life 
that in light of eternity will seem next to nothing and like dust in the scales compared to eternity. God says to us, we either depart from our sins and go to heaven by way of Christ, or we must depart from Christ and everything that is good to have our sins. And in hell, our sins will be drained of every bit of pleasure they give us now. And that is a foolish bargain. And eternity will bear heavy in our conscience telling us so. One of the ways that Jesus describes the agony of hell is with the description of the worm that does not die. Fire that cannot be quenched and the worm that does not die. And I take that not to be a reference so much to the physical gnawing of the flesh in physical torment, but the gnawing of conscience upon the damned soul for all of eternity. On earth, men can sear their consciences. They can harden their consciences so that they do not bother them. But in hell, God will make the conscience alive and it will gnaw at us. Driving the sinner to horror and regret and despair. And that despair will lead to what Jesus calls the gnashing of teeth. which refers to the insatiable enmity and hatred the damned in hell have towards God and towards all who are redeemed. Envy will fill their heart. And they will hate their torments. And they will hate their tormentor. And they will express their indignation not towards themselves, but towards Christ because He did not save them and because they are unable to take revenge upon Him. They will be forever as those most unhappily conquered. Filled with rage at the judgment of God because they spurned here on earth the opportunities for grace and the things that would have made for their peace. That brings us to our application this morning. Our application. I have three things that I want to briefly open up. Three things that we should take to heart and apply from this doctrine. Number one, I want to speak to the unbeliever here. This applies to the out-and-out unbeliever. You know you don't profess Christ. And as well, perhaps even more soberingly, to the hypocrite. For the one who professes Christ and yet in his heart is distant and far from Him. Listen to me. You who are outside of Christ, God's command to you this morning is very simple. It is very straightforward. 
He commands you and graciously invites you this morning to flee to Christ and be saved from the wrath to come. And my friend, it is coming. Our putting it out of our mind or our denying it or impugning God's character for having a place such as hell does not change the fact that the judgment seat of Christ is fast approaching and we must all appear before it. And the time to consider the Lord and to turn to Him in mercy for mercy is today. Not tomorrow. Not next week. Not at the end of your life. First of all, you don't know when your end is coming. So often, men and women are cut off in the midst of their pursuits when they never expected it. But also, listen to me, even if you did know when your death was coming, you're continuing to refuse the light now and continuing to harden yourself against the Gospel right now, you are just more hardening your heart and making your repentance more difficult and maybe impossible. And so today, if you hear His voice, do not harden your heart as they did in the wilderness. If the torments of hell force a man to look to Christ, those terrors are to be cherished and acted upon. My friend, do you tremble to die? I have more, far more pity for the person who doesn't tremble to die, who is outside of Christ, than the one who does. Because at least that may be the beginning of a conscience that fears God. That realizes there is danger and that I need to move to safety. God often, when He deals with sinners, men and women and children, God often takes us to hell before He takes us to heaven. And He often rips up our soul with fear and terror and the terribleness of our sin and the terror how terrifying God's judgment is so that the brightness of the Gospel of Christ's grace appears all the brighter to us. And my friend, how the Gospel bandages up all of our wounds... I want to plead with you this morning, you who are here, who are outside of Christ. The answer this morning is not to try to put off or silence the reality of terror or try to diminish your guilt. I know that's the first thing by nature we think of doing. There's a problem here. I feel guilty. It causes me to fear. Therefore, let's get rid of the guilt. By denying it. That's not the answer. That's not the way of peace that God exhorts us to go down. 
that's what sinners have been doing ever since the garden. Starting with Adam and Eve. These fig leaves will be sufficient to cover our sins. They're not that big of a deal. And it won't work. That will work for an hour or a day or a week until your conscience snaps you back to reality and you realize I'm simply lying to myself. Listen to me. The pathway to peace, God's pathway to peace, is Romans 8.3. Not denying how bad my sins are. Not denying the punishment they deserve. But while confessing that, embracing the promise of the Gospel, that what the law could not do, weakened as it was by the sinful flesh, God has done by sending His Son in the likeness of sinful flesh, and He condemned in Christ sin in the flesh. God has sent for us one to bear our hell. As unflinching as the justice of God is, and as many and as bad as our sins are, Christ has come to take them all away if we will have Him. The terrors of hell are meant to drive us to the wounds of the cross of Christ. And to drive us to the Son of God who hung there on Calvary's tree, accursed for me. When you look there, you have peace. Like Luther said, when I look at myself, I don't know how I could be saved. But when I look at Christ, I don't know how I could be lost. Sinner, take your sins to Christ, believing God's Word that Christ came to save sinners. That's the only kind of people He came to save. And by faith, apply Him and all His Gospel benefits to your heart. Because truly, the sinner has no other remedy or refuge but in the blood and the merits and the righteousness of Jesus Christ. He will not fail to save to the uttermost the worst of sinners. He will not fail to cleanse the most defiled conscience. And He will not fail to speak peace to the most troubled soul. Find safety and refuge in Christ. Secondly, I want to speak to the Christian. Secondly, Christian, fear God and do not sin. Fear God and do not sin. Hell reminds the Christian that there is no such thing as a small sin. And it reminds us to never think slight thoughts of sin. As one Puritan said, small sins are like paint primer that help the paint stick. 
And so small sins pave the way for bigger sins. And the doctrine of hell should cause the Christian to fear every sin. It reminds us that sin is dangerous. And it is a treacherous path that leads to destruction. Christian, we dare not play with that which has killed so many. And we dare not make friends with that which killed our Savior. Christian, when it comes to our assurance, as we live the Christian life and we wrestle with doubt, we wrestle with God's presence being with us, when it comes to assurance, it's no surprise that if we are loitering in the pathway of sin, it's no surprise that we're going to wonder whether we are indeed on the pathway that leads to heaven. Because that's the way God has designed it. Our assurance is designed by God to soar not when we are friends with sin, and if it does, it's very likely a false assurance, but rather He's designed our assurance to soar when the child of God walks carefully on the path of God's commands, when He cultivates the fear of God and a fear of sin. And he seeks to run with sincerity along that narrow path that leads to life. When when he is fearful of transgressing those gracious guardrails that God has put in place for us. And he fears transgressing them because he's seen what they have done to others. So Christian, allow and cultivate from the doctrine of hell a fear of God, a fear of sin and where it leads, and a more close walk with God, clinging more closely to His Word and His commands. Thirdly, and lastly, Christian, pray for and witness to those who are in danger of hell. Pray for and witness to those who are in danger of hell. Christian, the doctrine of hell, almost unlike any other doctrine, should drive us to our knees in prayer. It should give us an urgency and a fervency to go to God. Because God saves sinners. God is the one who shows mercy to whom He shows mercy. And therefore we must go to God and ask Him to show mercy to those who are yet outside of Christ. May God teach us more the value of a soul. The infinite value of one soul. I think it was Spurgeon who said that if he lived his entire life of suffering and got to heaven and realized that only one sinner had entered heaven as a result of his ministry, he said it was all worth it.
we need to pray not only for others who are in danger of hell, we need to pray for our own hearts as we don't even feel the way we ought to about the fact that that person is on their way to hell. And we need to pray that God would work within our hearts affections for God and affections for our fellow man that drive us to prayer not just out of a sense of duty, but because that's the first thing I want to do because I love my fellow image bearers and they are a never dying soul just like me and they're in danger. And Christian, after we've prayed for them, we need to also pray for ourselves that the fear of man would be put far from us so that we would speak the truth of Christ to them. Jesus says here in verse 28, do not fear those who can kill the body. Why do you think He says that? Because men don't like this message. They don't like to hear of judgment to come. And some of them, if not most of them, will hate you for it. But Jesus girds us with strength by telling us, do not fear them. Yes, they can kill the body, but after that they can do no more. Rather, fear God. Fear God for your own sake and for their sake. The Lord Jesus says to Paul in the book of Acts as he's discouraged in Corinth, in a vision, he said to Paul, Paul, go on speaking, for I have many people in this city. May the Lord grant us grace and work these things more deeply into our hearts. May He renew our love for the Lord Jesus and our love for sinners and a fervency to see those snatched from the fire. Christian, Christ is coming again in judgment. We want to be those found engaged in his, our Master's business when He returns. So let's commit ourselves to God. Let's ask for His help. Let's pray together. Father, be gracious to all of us, we pray. We pray that You would work within our hearts the very affections that we've, we've talked about this morning. Lord, You are the One who works all good within us. Work in each heart here this morning as we have different need. Your Spirit knows. Your Spirit knows the state of every man and every woman and every child. Father, we pray that You would be gracious to the sinner, gracious to those who are hardened in heart. Soften their hearts, we pray. And Father, work these things within the hearts of Your people. We pray that we would walk more closely with You. That we, would not, that we would not lose our carefulness. That we would not think lightly of sin. 
but cause us to walk with intentionality and carefulness to please You in all things. Cause us to take heed and to take warning from Your Word. And enlarge our hearts for the lost. Father, open our mouths to speak. Let us not be ashamed. Let us not fear men. Father, be gracious, we pray. We thank You for the Lord's Day. We pray that You would help us this day as we've gathered to encourage one another in the Word of truth. Pray that You would sanctify us. Help us to be faithful friends to one another. To encourage one another to press on. Bless our time of fellowship, we pray. Our time... Uh, our meal together, and our afternoon service this afternoon. We thank You for all of Your mercies to us in Christ. Be with us, we pray. We ask in Christ's name. Amen.